Hi, welcome to Literaturely, a podcast about teaching literature. I'm Margaret And I'm Paige Wallace. And today we are talking about assignments. That we are. Two weeks ago, we talked about like creating your syllabus. So this is just tends to be the next step of figuring out how are you going to assess your students? For me, I'm thinking about while I'm creating my syllab- syllabus, how can I uh, develop assignments that are exciting for me uh, and exciting for them and not just the sort of standard, here's a literary research paper assignment at the end of the semester and that's it, and then a midterm and a final, stuff like that. Yeah, so thinking about how, like, the assignments can help your students better understand the material, work through it, but also not just be filling in the bubble, kind of like, okay, I did that, I did that, Um, which can be hard, especially we don't want to reinvent the wheel, but sometimes that tire needs to be Yeah, we're tired of it. I think last week we had talked about the course objectives and working that out, as I just said, so, like, Maybe, and you had talked about how you were now doing your course objectives and thinking about the the readings that you would pair with them. And I think it might be nice to think about the assignments that we pair with different course objectives. Yeah, absolutely. If we start with like those like kind of basic minor assignments that help us identify mm-hmm. terms, conventions, the sort of scholarly methods for literary cultural media studies, what kind of basic or minor assignments do you use, Margaret? So I will start my semesters, um, the day where you typically do like the introductions, icebreakers. I actually break them up into groups and they play a game of literary balderdash. Okay. And for those of you who have never played balderdash, it is where you are given an obscure word and everyone writes down a definition that they think could be that word. And you also have the real definition mixed in there and, and the kind of host for that round, reads all the words, and you guess which one is correct. So I do that with literary terms. And it's a nice way to kind of check in with my students about what terms they do or do not already know. So what, like establishing the foundation for the, the class from the outset. And it's a nice way because no one wants to admit that they don't know something. So if you ask your students like, who doesn't know this? Who does know this? They're not going to be honest because they don't want to look like a dummy, which is fair. Um, so I found that literary balderdash is really fun because if they don't know the answer, it's not that they look stupid, it's that they get to look funny. Yeah. So like one group for the term allegory had no idea what it was. So they wrote down two alligators fighting to the death, <laughs> which is like perfect for allegory. Um, so it's a nice way we, uh, to kind of start that out. And I've never done this before, but I think you could probably adapt that to do it throughout the semester with the different terms they're supposed to be, you know, learning throughout. Um, might get a little bit boring if they all do know the words. Right, right. Um, so I don't know. What do you do? Um, so I usually break students into groups at the beginning of the semester also. Um, I tend to do this icebreaker slash group creator activity where they tell me um, the three characters, like fictional characters that they're most like. And I use that Mm. to then, we put them all on the board and it takes a little longer than, you know, um, than like a traditional icebreaker. But it's really fun. And then I put them into groups. Uh, 
And then I've also, I've not done Balderdash before, which I think is really cool and like a fun way to be wrong, right? Um, But I have done the whole give them a slip of paper with a term on it. Uh, And so what do you guys think this means? And we do like a round table sort of thing. And we have one representative from the group who tells us like, okay, so this is what I think post-colonial means or... um, spectator or whatever it is um and then they explain that to i'm trying to think of other mini, like minor assignments uh, or th- like discussion based things that i do that aren't just piggybacking off of yours there um yeah but let's see well you said something uh, earlier uh when we were t- we weren't even talking about assignments in this way but you have your students do presentations yeah on theories and I thought that was really interesting and something that I might want to incorporate so I'd love for you to talk yeah so I've done that that. in introduction to um literature and in the short in a short story class um so where I give them a, a basis of a theory right so an essay that explains um post-colonial theory or feminist theory and how it applies to literary studies and then I have them branch out from there and present um like usually bi-weekly their group presents like a powerpoint or a prezi um, that explain to us what that theory is and then give us some examples of it how it's been used before um and so then they get to assign us some reading that goes along with it yeah cool uh so what sort of things have they assigned is, are, do you, like, give them I suggestions, do. or do they totally Well, come up with a little bit themselves? of both. So if they're struggling, I'll give them suggestions. Um, but then mm-hmm. also they can go on the databases and get, uh, like, some really basic definitions, right? So, like, mm-hmm. uh, I'm trying to think. It's I'm not sure what the database is, but it's, like, literary criticism or something, um, a really standard one, and it'll pop up, like, a three-page uh, summary of that particular theory, and then it'll give a reading list with it. Um, and so then they can choose one from there. So that's something that I'll point them towards. What I have them do yeah. is give me what they're planning to assign prior. So if it's something that's just, like, completely not going to work or... Um, going to be too difficult or too dense or not not you know critical enough then I'll I'll have them choose something else and so but that can be anything it can be something that's popular culture it can be something that's academic um and they have they they tend to have a like a good time with it so like when they're doing something like a like feminist theory they can find like popular culture art like articles I can't talk today. They can find articles um, <laughs> on their favorite TV shows or something like that that are doing a feminist critique. And that really excites them oh, cool. um, to be able to share that with their classmates. And then we talk about how they could do the same things with some of the texts that we're reading in class. Oh, that's cool. Because, like, they are already doing a lot of the work we do in literary classrooms in the real world. Like, we've We've talked about this. Like, they're on Game of Thrones conspiracy sites. They're, like, breaking down why a tweet is not funny. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you guys are doing literary, like, analysis all the time. Um, and and so something you and I have also talked about before, because I just recently learned about this. You have known about this in the past, is Bloom's Taxonomy, which 
kind of that like breakdown of for, for scaffolding, like things about like what do students first need to know to do the next step and assignments that correlate with that. I don't know if that's a good explanation. I think that's a good explanation. So it's thinking about how, okay. like how we can appeal to all the, like these different categories, right? Discussion, critical analysis, mm-hmm. um, memory, right? Just remembering this thing. Um, and, and what kind of tools can we use in each of those categories so that we're not always just focusing on that fallback of like a round table discussion, which is great, but not always super productive, especially when the class just is more quiet. Yeah. Or like doesn't have that memory knowledge base to have the discussion. Cause that was something, the reason I thought of it was when we first started talking about this, you said like the basic terms, basic ideas, all of that. And thinking about, yeah, you have to build that foundation in a literary class um, where we don't often think about just the cultural capital or like key terms that students need to know to participate in the more in-depth analysis. So thinking about like literary boulder dash, like that might be a way to start off those basic terms, but building off of that, like mix and match, those are kind of boring. Like I'd like to think of more like fresh ways to think through how do we assess our students' knowledge base. But I think, um, your group project for presenting on different literary theories really gets that next of like they have to comprehend the theory and then like that application of it like you're hitting those next two steps which then like beyond that then you can move to actual the works themselves and, and have them kind of take this independent role of like creating their own analysis which is cool to like think through these steps like what steps do your students need to take to get to that final result and what assignments can you pair with that to help yeah them yeah. along the way and so another skills? thing that I've done it's not really a minor assignment um it's more like a semester long assignment so I'll do um these various like collaborative assignments uh and so what I've done what I've paired with those presentations in the past has been um like a google folder for each uh theory mm-hmm. or each um term that I want them to do something with and then in that folder we'll have a bunch of like whoever's assigned like whichever group's assigned to that that theory or that term will put their presentation there so they can everybody can go back and access it and then we'll keep a running list that anyone can edit or add to of text that they think mm. might um be interesting for using that particular term or that particular theory with and then a short explanation of why and then we do a delicious links essay in there which is kind of like um this is something i found on the internet uh, like a couple years ago and so it's like an annotated bibliography but um less formal and so it's here are the links on the internet that i've found to things that are helpful to me to understand this or to use it further and so they have to uh throughout the semester they have to add so many materials to other people's groups so that there there's this constant conversation even after they've presented in their their individual groups they go back to those those folders and they use them as resources and in the way working in that collaborative part makes sure that they can't forget that they're there or that they don't like this so that they're sort of motivated to continue using those and adding to those materials but I really like the delicious links essays like the collaborative ones I've done them in where students have done them individually and kind of worked but kind of didn't work um whereas when they're collaborative they go in and it's just like this ever-evolving multitude of sources it requires some work on your part because sometimes they put something up because they want 
to get credit for that collaboration. And it's, you know, <laughs> a really bad take on affect theory. Um, and you need to go in and, and say, like, I'll, I usually won't delete it. I'll usually comment and say, here's what's wrong with this, guys. Um, why don't you look at source number such and such, which is a much better explanation or much better use mm-hmm. of affect theory. Um, but, yeah, it's fun. They like it. Um, and it's yeah. it's... It's also good for me because they're exposing me to a bunch of materials and resources that they clearly identify with um, and find useful that I probably wouldn't have found. Yeah, like it, it kind of forces you out yeah. of your bubble a yeah. little bit. That's, that's interesting. That makes me think of like an assignment that I really want to try in the future but haven't tried yet of assigning note takers yeah. throughout the semester. And, like, have it all in a Google document, a shared Google document. So, kind of, I guess, what you're already doing. And it's, like, two note-takers a day. So, if someone's sick, you have a backup. But ideally, you have, like, the two perspectives. So, like, what one person catches maybe isn't something that stands out as important to the other person. Which maybe just sort of that engagement, that might help with that knowledge remembering. But it's something I'm still working through about, like, how do you grade notes that someone takes. Um, yeah. And and I don't really have that figured out yet. So if anyone has any suggestions or advice, I would love it because I've been mulling this over for a while and I don't have any solid. I have a suggestion. Um, I've been okay. wanting to use Padlet for something. So P A D L E T. Uh, shout out to Janine okay. for telling me about Padlet. Um, and <laughs> it's this collaborative tool where. They can add text and images and links and all of these different things. Um, mm. So I think that would be an interesting platform to use for note-taking. So for class yeah. note-takers. I've used um, Twitter for a class note-taker. Mm. And it's been okay, you know. Um, and so I wonder, like, with a better platform for that, if they would be more mm. motivated to do it. Yeah. And I would want it to be there also for posterity's mm-hmm. sake. So, like, when they're doing the larger projects, it's easy to yeah, more cohesive. to find those resources we talked about. Yeah. Um, but maybe that's worth talking through later on. Something I do want to talk about before we move on to the Norse, n- Norse next course objective is that sometimes departments require you to have a midterm or a final exam to assess that they have learned these basic terms, conventions, and methods. Um, And when you can't get out of a midterm or final, how do you make it productive, a productive assignment? Uh, I want to be careful here because I do think that midterms can be really productive. Uh, I think that Mm -hmm. they motivate students to read, to read more closely. In the future, there's going to be a test on this, and I need Mm -hmm. to retain some information about it. The idea of a test motivates them in a way that a final project is not. Right. Part of some of the collaborative work I I have students do in semester-long, like, it's a semester-long project, Mm -hmm. is tied to the desire to be, like... To have this idea of, like, retaining and testing yourself throughout the entire semester. 
for my midterm, I'll often have them work on a class to- uh, Coggle, so C-O-G-G-L-E, mm-hmm. uh, which is like a, I don't know, it's like a vision board of sorts. And they can each like log in and make changes to it. And so I'll, for like an introduction to literature class, we'll have a toggle for every single book that we've read. And then Mm. again, they're required to go in and make certain, like a a certain number of uh, uh, contributions to it. It's within their group. So like their group has to make five limbs on this tree. Um, Mm -hmm. And... So, and then I'll use that information to kind of glean what I want to include on the midterm. Um, Mm -hmm. And I also use it to say, like, not to trick them, not to say, like, well, they haven't talked about this at all, but to ask the questions of, like, is this something that I need to revisit because they haven't talked about it at Mm -hmm. all? That is something to keep in mind that, like, I with midterms and exams, I never want to find out the holes in their knowledge or the holes in the course through their answers. Like, I like to have those kind of check-ins to be like, oh, is this something that maybe is not as relevant to the course as I thought it was or something that I've just assumed that they understood or we just glossed over too quickly um, or maybe just to find out that, oh, they really didn't get that and I thought we were all on the same page. Yeah. Like, I don't want it to be the exam where I discover that. So having those, like, check-in assignments I think are key when you have those sorts of um, – Uh, formal. Yeah, and so the other thing with the exams are that I think of them a little bit less as like a traditional test of knowledge and more like a reflection. A reflection on like what you've what you've gotten from the class throughout the semester like so far and then like some goal setting for the future. So uh, and I think that ties back to my my course objectives and goals, right? So if I can ask them something like what's a strong thesis statement that you would write for this particular story that we read, then I know that they've read it, they've retained it, and I'm not just asking them to regurgitate summary. I'm asking them to do some critical thinking in that test space that will also test like whether or not they're ready to write their thesis statements for their final papers. I don't know if that made sense. No, it did. And now it's making me think that... I that we both have a lot more to say about exams than I think either of us thought we did, that maybe this is a future podcast episode of just how do you make a worthwhile exam? What are the different approaches? Especially because, like, you're getting to the point that of a more analytical exam versus an exam where you are you have to assess those. Do they know the key terms? Do they know – can they mix or mix match the theorist to the theory? And I know that I've taught a – course where I was required to have that sort of like it had to be an objective exam with multiple choice questions and um kind of a not subjective right approach so it wasn't really gauging their critical thinking so much as just their knowledge base um and you know we got through it I think my students did well on it um but it might be worthwhile to talk about this in depth later on. Like, what sort of exams are there? What are the kind of approaches? Yeah, I think that that sort of exam that's asking those questions about, like, mul- like multiple choice or uh, short answer definitional, I don't think that they're... I'm not in the camp of, like, let's just throw them out. I think that they can have a place. I'm thinking about uh, some 
exams I took myself uh, in some intro classes that, like, thinking about, like, some of them were, like, mid- like medieval literature and they were very, like, definitional. Like, do you know this information? Mm-hmm. And that was really important to, to my success in other classes in that same sort of field or area. Yeah. Um, and even thinking in like an intro to English studies, I can understand having that kind of test of knowledge, of ability to retain that knowledge, because you're working with people that are planning to major in English and are going to go forward in other classes and really use it. Mm-hmm. Whereas like an intro to literature in the past teaching at, at Florida State, a lot of those kids were not I- in the major and it, it wouldn't have been as, I, I don't think it would have been as helpful for them. Yeah, so then it's kind of that triangulation of course objective, student demographic, and assignment. So thinking about, like, well, what do you want your students to do with this course objective, and how can you get your assignments to reflect that? Not just the assignments reflecting the course objectives, but the two-layered. I think that's really interesting. Well, we can move on, speaking of course objectives, to the next one that tends to pop up a lot, which is exhibiting flexibility and complexity of critical thought in analyzing literature, media, and culture, which is what you kind of were just talking about with that thesis statement question. I thought that was a really good exam question. I never thought of having them just do a thesis statement that they would write. I've always thought about it like being short answer, long answer um, in the exam setting. So that that's kind of cool and something I'm going to think about including for next exam I may or may well, not Well, and it's also something I can tell them that I'm going to do. And it's not me throwing them a surprise. It's really me saying, like, this is a skill I want you to have at the end of this. And I can tell you that this is going to be on your midterm, on your final. Uh, They're able to prepare for it. And sometimes I'll even give them the opportunity to, like, show me. Like, if you want to come by during office hours and let me look at the thesis statements you've made. So, again, I can talk with them about like where they're weak, where they're misunderstanding, like what exactly a thesis statement is. Like what if it's just a summary and it doesn't have to get to the point of the midterm or, and it definitely doesn't have to get to the point of the final, hopefully where they get to the final paper and they're writing a paper that doesn't have a thesis statement. Yeah. Cause that's something like long-term. And I think the literature classes in general need to incorporate more assignments about developing thesis statements because so many of our students, we like, they don't know what it is and it's not their fault because it's like they're told about it in high school and then no one really ever revisits it with them again. This is and... a running joke with like almost like I'd say 95% of my classes where they they just uh, have like a, a joke because uh, I always talk about thesis statements and they'll be like, are we talking about thesis statements today? And I'm like, probably. And because it's it's the basis, right? It's the tool they need, I think, for mm-hmm. critical analysis to happen. And so many times they're like, I don't know how to do this. I don't know what it is. Like, I have a vague idea, but. Yeah. And yeah, I think it's exactly that. Like, they have a vague idea and they're afraid to ask because they don't want to seem stupid again. Like, that's to me the biggest obstacle we face in our classrooms is that our students don't want to seem dumb. So we have to provide assignments, not to talk down to them, but allow them places to fail um, and also share what they don't know without feeling embarrassed. Um, And I guess I'll, I'll like 
say what I try to do with that, I've talked to you about it in the past, is the critical conversations essays that I do, where they write a flash essay and they're given a short amount of time. Um, I post the prompt like 24 hours ahead of time. And the reason I do that is I tell them, you guys don't have a lot of time to do this. Like these aren't going to be great essays. <laughs> like there, you shouldn't overstress them. You should spend like no more than an hour writing them. They're not supposed to be great. Um, what we want to get at is the ideas. And then, so they write, it's super short, like 500 words to 750 words, I think maybe even less. And the biggest thing is the thesis and then being able to back up that thesis. So like where in the readings do you see the evidence that supports this? They don't do any research or anything like that. It's just to focus on that like thesis building and analysis skills without them feeling like, well, I don't know how to do that. I don't want to like sound stupid. Uh, like I've had so many students in class say like, everyone else sounds so smart. Like I'm afraid to raise my hand because I don't want to sound dumb in front of them. And I'm like, they all feel the same way. Right. Like, no, You're like, no. I sound dumb all the time. <laughs> yeah, Do you like, hear me up here at the front? Dumb yeah. every day. <laughs> yeah. So, and then what they do, though, is they switch those um, critical essays with a partner. So they do have to build that confidence of someone seeing their work, but it's in the safe environment. I remind them that like nobody wants to see anyone fail in this class. If they do, they're the jerk, not you. Like this is going to be the most supportive environment you can have. Um, and they have to respond to the essay using, we, we call it like one of our four critical approaches, which is just they can agree and. Uh, so they agree with the author's premise and they extend it somewhere else. Um, like you can also see it applied in this passage from the book. Um, they agree with the, or they agree, but, so they agree with the author's premise, but they disagree with their conclusion where they're like, I'm with you until where you say it's important because I don't think it's important for that reason. It's important because of this reason, whatever. They agree yet. So they agree with the author's premise yet. They th uh, think they overlook a key aspect. So yeah, I agree with you, but I don't think you've considered how this affects like the queer characters in the novel. Um, and then like they can disagree because, and we go over how you disagree respectfully. And I give them the warning of Ida Professor who told us her first conference, her presentation was on why this critic was totally wrong. And she was like, and I got to the conference, they had like the opening night reception and the first person I met was the critic I was disagreeing with. So we go over like, you don't, when you disagree with someone, you don't want to burn bridges with that person. Um, and they handle it really well. So they write those responses, they upload them and they have a chance to talk face to face in class. So it's also like, okay, if you're gonna engage with these ideas, you have to look the person in the face. Um, and we, they do really, really well with it. And by the end, they've been able like to fine tune their ideas. So when they incorporate the research, they're not afraid to disagree with the critics or diverge from them and it's really really nice to see like that evolution over it over the semester they do it maybe like five times before the end of the semester which is a lot of work and I always think they're going to complain about it and then all the course evals they're like that was my favorite part and I'm like that's the most work and so that's something else to keep in mind like if your assignments I think are challenging the students 
in a productive way, they are not going to complain about the workload. I think that's a really, like, interesting and useful assignment. And I am thinking more about, like, how I would be willing to replace, like, response papers with something like that. Like, that 24 hours where we want your, we're most interested in your ideas. That's really good, Margaret. I like it a lot. It's really fun. I try to keep the, it Mm open-ended. And I always did it, like, where it was always on a Friday. Because... They were for my Monday, Wednesday, Friday classes, and, you know, students sometimes aren't there on Fridays, so I gave them the option that they could do it in class or at home, but I would partner them with another student at home. Most of them agreed to come in person, that they liked being yeah, with each other. that's really um, cool. Yeah, I liked it, but Fridays, it was it was fun. Um, it is a lot sure. of grading. Yeah. So be yeah. prepared. It's a lot more grading than just having that final yeah. essay. <laughs> um, so I do something that, with critical conversations... That's more of like an in-class assignment to where I give... So if it's like a Monday, Wednesday, Friday class on like a Monday, I'll give each group a folder of um, documents. There'll be critical takes on whatever we're talking about. Sometimes it's on a particular theory or time period or a particular piece. And I then I tell them that, you know they're the explorers for this packet of document and I don't tell them anything about that packet of document except for their job is to arrange that information around a dinner table. So if they had those authors and they were seated at a dinner table, what would they say to each other? How would they keep the conversation going? Um, And then they have a week to present that to the class. And so I'll give them some time to do it. So I'll give it to them, like I said, like on the Monday. And then the following Monday, they'll present their dinner table to us. They do a visual representation of it. So what's in the center of that dinner table like what's everybody eating what brought you together Mm -hmm. um is it you're all interested in freud like what what's bringing them all together oh i was thinking actual food and i was like imagining meal plans that you would do for like joyce like a lot of funny (laughs) funny though i have had so many students email me and be like do you mean actual food uh like what they're actually eating and i'm like no no so they have that same thought but what's the topic that's what they're eating and then how are they all like in conversation with each other it's fun they like it they they generally like it and I give them time to work on it in class so that they can be they can ask me all their questions because even though they like it at the end at the beginning they're like what what are we doing that's a really cool way though to get them to engage with that sort of critical thought and analysis where it's not just regurgitating because they, these are conversations that obviously didn't happen. So they have to imagine, like, well, what's this person's position and really understand, understand it and be able to kind of take it a step further and be like, and this is how they'd respond to this sort of thought. That's Yeah, so if cool. I had more, like, um, at some point when I can devote more time to it, um, so usually I'll do it, like, twice in a semester. At some point I might, like, rethink it, revamp it, and only do it once and have the actual group members be the people. Um, Whereas Mm. in this situation, they just give us that visual and then they explain it to us. So like, these are the people at the head of the table. They have the strongest arguments. They're definitely, and and they have the strongest arguments and they're separated by the table link because they wouldn't agree on this point. So they kind of walk us through it that way. Yeah, that's really cool. And I think there's a lot of ways you can adapt that for different contexts. Like you could, like, I like the idea of like a, folder with with clippings and excerpts and no context and so how do we start to use the artifacts we have 
to gauge like what the significance is, what the context. I'm really interested in this. We should move on maybe to our next standard course objective that pops up a lot, um, which is we've already been talking about it, but developing an argument that reflects the field, practicing close reading skills, analyses, and interpretation, which that just tends to be every literature course is that you have to develop this argument with close reading and right. research. And I think you alluded to this at the beginning of our conversation that people tend to just rely on the traditional term paper, which I think is great. Like that is, especially for people who want to stay in the, this field or go into like um, journalism or PR communications, like you have to have those writing skills, those research skills, but it's been around since the beginning of time, it feels sometimes. So how do you keep your term paper assignments fresh? Um, well, you're assuming that I keep them fresh. No, I, <laughs> I know you keep uh, them fresh. <laughs> I try. So I do, I use Wix. I like the idea of working in taking traditional requirements for an assignment and putting them in a new space. So what does this project look like if it's digital? Um, Wix is starting to feel a little bit old to me, so I'm going to have to like figure out what I'm going to do with that. <laughs> but the other thing is I started doing podcasts when I started teaching literature classes. And mm. I did not, I, I listened to a solid amount of podcasts, but um, I was definitely not a connoisseur of podcasting and like putting them together, anything like that. And so I remember meeting with one of the librarians uh, at FSU who was wonderful. Um, and he developed like an instructional like library day where he would explain to my students the ins and outs of podcasting and what resources the library could offer them. And then I use that a couple times as like this is your final like your final paper mm. so um what they would do is they would write a draft of it and turn it into me with an annotated bibliography so they're still doing all the research and everything and then they would decide how they wanted to present that on a podcast was it going to be like monologue style would it be with a guest and I even had some students do like an interview style where they inter one student in particular where she interviewed uh, characters from the the novel that we were reading, and she did a fantastic job with that. She obviously had to wrangle her her like roommate slash friends because she had like seven <laughs> different characters. Um, and oh, wow. so she was like a, it was very almost, you would have enjoyed it. Maybe I'll send it to you. I have to find it. Uh, it was very reality TV-esque where she was the host um, and she was breaking down like the... It was the reunion Yeah, special. the relationships uh, um, between <laughs> the characters. And it was, it was great. And it was also great for me because I feel like it reflected like that she had learned a lot over the semester and it was like not as monotonous, you know, as reading a 10-page paper. So yeah, th those are two things that I do instead of that traditional uh, paper. In terms of, I guess, of things that I do as an alternative to term papers, I've done podcasts as well. Not as in-depth as you. It was like I had a few students elect to do it. Um, but one of the options that students uh, pursued that really paid off was creating an online exhibit to 
add further context to one of the novels we read during the semester. So these students um, created it for Herland to talk about like uh, the feminism represented in the text. And then um, so they part of the exhibit focused on that. So how does this reflect the suffragette movement? Um, how does Charlotte Perkins Gilman fit into this? Who is Charlotte Perkins Gilman? But then they also expanded it. So who are the feminists, even though they might not go by that name at that point, who Charlotte Perkins Gilman is not representing in this ideal feminist utopia. So they like had um, found artifacts about um, black women in Chicago who fought for the right to vote in like the early 1900s before um, it was as prevalent everywhere else. And they looked at other activists who or maybe focusing on like minority communities or issues that tended to get overlooked by the majority. And it was really interesting because it focused just as much as it focused on what's in the text. It also considered what the text leaves out, the silences and gaps. And so it was really cool, critical thinking where they had to go beyond just regurgitating and reading like, well, here it says this, here it says this, and really think about what the text is implying about women and women's roles. And then the other uh, kind of alternative assignment was I had students create um, business proposals for a feminist bookstore. So thinking about like the range of texts that we had, what sort of books like would you order? What sort of communities would you serve? How would you make your text accessible? So it's less literary analysis. Um, I think it's assignment that works well in like an intro course where you don't have a lot of majors. So like it's some, something that business majors can engage in and think about like, well, if I have like a niche bookstore, like what are the important texts to carry and why? Like they had to justify that why. Yeah, that sounds fun. fascinating. I would do that assignment. To... Yeah, it was, they had to, uh, I'm trying to remember if that option required a reflection, but I don't think it did. I think it was just in the actual proposal. They had to argue like for the significance of the bookstore, but they had to use like theories we used in class to do so. So it veered slightly from the traditional business proposal. Not too many business proposals are quoting Adrian mm -hmm. Rich, but <laughs> there's did so things like that. But um, it was cool. Uh, one of them thought about having as it as a mobile bookstore so they could reach populations that don't have access to bookstores in their community. So like, you know how when Barnes & Noble and Borders went under, a lot of communities lost their yeah, bookstores. Yeah, like, that would um, be a really smart thing to do. Yeah, so I like seeing those sorts of things that wouldn't also typically come up in class. But when your students do actual, like, term paper assignments, do you have any tricks to make it so it's not that rote fill-in-the-blank sort of paper or that you don't read the same essay 20 times in a row? Yeah, so I always have them write a proposal. I don't know if that's a trick. I No, I did not have to write proposals for papers yeah, in undergrad. Yeah, uh... I I think I did write a fair number of proposals in undergrad. Shout out to CMC. I have them write proposals and I hate, well, I guess I don't hate it because I do it, to be the judge because I, I, I do ask them to get those proposals in very early to come talk to me about them, about their ideas during office hours. And I'll usually conference. I know like not everyone conferences with literature mm -hmm. classes, but I will conference during this period so that I have the chance to talk to each of them individually and say, you know, are you really interested in this topic? 
do you really care about this book? Are you feeling like that might be the easiest thing to write about? Yeah, I love asking, like, why do you care yeah. about this? It, like, to get at that where it's like, oh, then you don't actually want to write about this. Like, <laughs> let's talk about this. Like, I had a student who was writing about uh, Salinger's Perfect Day for Banana Fish. And I was like, why are you interested in this? And he was like, well, I want to go into hotel management. And I was like, oh, well, let's talk about, like, how Perfect Day for Banana Fish, like, reflects the growing resort culture. Like, what can yeah. you tell me about that? And he wrote a really yeah. good paper. <laughs> yeah, so I think that's really useful uh, to do some sort of pre-assignment so that that you're not just seeing their ideas for the very first time when you get their, their final paper. Yeah. Well, I do think conferences are key. I want to second what you said. Like, I always conference with my students, and it does yield such better papers because you get to not give them the answers but ask them the questions that will help them push their critical thinking and not just go for the easiest answer or get to like challenge their perspective a little bit like you have that one-on-one time where you can ask them like well what about this or have you considered this that they might say like no or yes but I didn't think anyone would care (laughs) it's like well make me care um so that's always fun and to give them resources and like work work through it I tend to like they have to bring an outline Mm -hmm. to the conference stage so that way they're not too far and deep because if you wait for a draft sometimes I find that they're like well I've like sunk cost fallacy they're like I've already put out in all this work I'm not rewriting it (laughs) yeah and the the other thing that I was gonna say that that I remembered um that I'll do has to do with uh I both love and hate prompts because I don't want them Mm. to just regurgitate what I think about a text. So I'll usually do some like loose prompts where I say, yeah, yeah. So I'll do a loose prompt that's like, can you compare some of the, the major themes or tropes from this particular text to a popular television show that you're watching so that they are drawing some parallels to things we've talked about in class, but they're not just regurgitating what we've said in class about mm-hmm. the text, but they're also not sort of grasping, well, how, in the dark for how to do that. So I'll do yeah. something, I'll do like a series of things like that. And I, I usually always do them in a collaborative space. So can you also, with your group, think of some prompts that would help your classmates start to approach this, this final paper? Okay, so I guess we should start wrapping up this conversation. So something that I want to leave with is thinking about how we schedule all these assignments because we've talked about a ton of assignments. Obviously, we can't fit them all in one semester, but how do we kind of do our best to make sure that they do fit? So how do you balance, because you've talked already about having your students do some of the work in class, how do you handle that balance of in-class work, out-of-class work? Okay, so something that we didn't touch on is... I'll do a like semester long uh, projects mm. that are collaborative uh, that are part of a group, and so mm. when I choose to do that, um, I usually will map out some time specifically for them to work in class. So if that means um, that we're meeting three times a week, then it might be that every other Friday is a group work activity day. Um, mm. And so that that works really well, like an introduction to literature class, where on Monday and Wednesday, we've talked about the text. um, And then on that Friday, we have a moment to work on those projects collaboratively. Uh, It's less smooth in a Tuesday, Thursday class, but it's still, it's more like, well, 
uh, 45 minutes every third week or something like that. Um, but yeah. I will map it out, right? I, I will try to map it out really um, down to the minutes uh, at the beginning of the semester. So mm-hmm. it's part of a routine. Um, yeah. That's like when I was teaching in-person classes, I always had each class mapped out to the minute because, as you know, I talk a lot. Um, but I do want to start doing that moving forward of kind of mapping out the estimates of how much each assignment should mm-hmm. take because I've been doing that. or Teaching online, like I had it broken up even though they were online as like this is your classwork, this is your homework. So they could kind of think about that time balance as they worked yeah. alone. Um, but moving forward for in-person and online classes, I do want to have that estimates of time and keep in, keeping in mind that not all students have the same ability. Some will have to take longer than others, but I want that so that they can take more agency over that time management. Yeah. So we talked about like that. Why do they feel more pressured with exams and projects? I think it's because with the projects, they don't feel that deadline the same way of, I have 30 minutes in this class to complete this, whatever. So I think having that time will help them plan their work better. Yeah, absolutely. It's also helpful on our, or at least for me on my end, um, to plan the assignments out, just to be like really deliberate in how those assignments are planned out. Like it's, I think that sometimes students think that like your due dates or the way you've got something mapped out at first coming in is maybe just arbitrary. Like I've picked a date on the, on the calendar and that's the date. And it's like, no, I'm thinking about, uh, you know, mid-semester, I want them to know this, and this assignment will give me an idea as to whether they actually know this by mid-semester, or have this ability by this, by, like, or this set of tools by mid-semester. That's, like, my students always express surprise at the end. They're like, oh, all these assignments kind of work together. And I was like, that's not an accident, but that's, like, same thing. That's why we have the due dates when we do, because we need time to complete everything, to have it work together, to build, Um, and then I also, like, to leave time for revisions if possible. Yeah. Um, including my literature courses too. We usually spend like the last two weeks reflecting and on our assignments, which sounds like a cop out, but the reflection assignments have always really been productive and revealing. Um, maybe that's something we can talk about in the future. Yeah, I, I, I just want that is part of my yeah. Schedule. I just want to agree with you. I don't think that those reflections are reductive at all. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we've we said that we want to talk about uh, student evals and in the future, but and those can be helpful, but they're not nearly as helpful as as the sort of reflection assignments that you can give at the end of the semester. Um, it's especially like if you are able to do a, a few of them because you get to have different reflective approaches, which helps the students not only reflect on the course and how the course worked, but how they grew in the course, how their ideas shifted, um, the course within the context of larger world, it's, 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 I think, important for hitting some of those course objectives in, that allows for critical thinking, evaluation, application in ways um, traditional assignments don't allow for. But I always try to schedule that into the end. So I think we've talked about this before. I work backwards yeah. with my assignments. Like, okay, the last one has to be due on this. We'll go from there. I don't work backwards, so I'm the opposite in that. Mm. But I, I can see how working backwards is probably a better approach. 
Well, when I work frontwards to start, I always end up like if the semester ends December 1st, I'm all the way in January. I'm <laughs> <laughs> like, oh. <laughs> and on that note, what is your dream course for the fall? Should we ever resume? Um, well, you know, in the fall, I'll be teaching composition. Um, so my dream course that I'll dream about at night in the fall, um, mm-hmm. I, I want to do a film adaptations course. And, and that's pretty much all I've gotten. I am really interested in documentaries right now. Um, and mm-hmm. I don't know how, like, environmental documentaries would work in a, in a literature class. But I'm thinking about them with something like uh, Jonathan Safran Foer's um, We Are the Weather. Which is, you know, a lot of, it is nonfiction, but then there's this sort of memoir quality towards the end, and it is, has a lot of literary techniques in it, in yeah. terms of, like, hiding what we're actually talking to. You still have yeah. to create that right. narrative. And so, so, so yeah, yeah, there's that creation of a narrative, and it's not until you get almost halfway through the book that you, you know what he's, what the actual sort of central topic of the book is. And so I would be interested in taking some of these, um, like, science writing uh, texts that are nonfiction and thinking about documentary film and doing some sort of adaptations class. That's really cool. Yeah, so tell me what your, your dream class is. Um, my dream class is to think about, I guess somewhat similar, of using fiction and nonfiction, um, kind of a activists in the archives and thinking about the literary depictions of real-life activists and how that corresponds with the way they were documented while alive, how their work is documented since, and like tracing the way institutions remember them versus like the way literature art remembers them um and analyze those shifting depictions and identities um i think like obviously there's always been activists in various forms but i think our current iteration is a very specific like 20th century understanding and we're starting to see that shift so i think that'd be really interesting to talk about with students especially like the rise of the student activists we've seen yeah would you talk about miss america Oh, maybe. That could be fun. Um, I had been thinking more... <laughs> I have been thinking whenever I think about this class of Nella Larson and Carl von Vesch, okay. um, And how she was friends with him in real life. And he did a lot of like work as an al- a white ally. But in um, passing, she has such a send-up of him. And... I love it because it's coming from a place of, like, genuine respect and, like, trust, but also, like, you don't know, dude. Right, right, right. (laughs) You know, but only to a certain extent. And, like, thinking about the other activists she represents and depicts um, and picking up with, like, Richard Wright. um, And and then I was thinking also, like, Kay Boyle, just because so much of her work is autobiographical. Um, Side note, Kay Boyle was called by the president of Stanford the most dangerous woman in America because of her anti-Vietnam War efforts, which was basically her holding protest signs with the students at Stanford, (laughs) and that made her the most dangerous woman in America, and we don't talk about her now because her work doesn't get remembered the same way. Oh, and you could talk about Jane Fonda with that in comparison, right? Mm -hmm. Um, 
Yeah. Who gets remembered and why? Maybe we could do something with Hamilton. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's that's what I'm dreaming of today. And so I guess until next time, we'll just keep. Yeah. Talking. All right. Talk to you later, Margaret. Okay. Bye.